0: Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here.
0: So, in this podcast series, we're going to dig into the principles behind your new book, Grow the Pie, and we'll discuss how they apply to some of the thorniest problems relating to the role of business in society. These include shareholder rights, executive pay, activist investors, share buybacks. And we'll also look at the role of all stakeholders in a business and how they can work together to help fulfill its purpose to the benefit of society as a whole. In this episode, We're going to discuss the central line of argument in the book, how it compares with other models of the role of business in society. And we'll also look at the main counter arguments from either side of the debate. I should say before we start that you can buy the book at growthepie.net and you'll also find there a host of other fabulous resources and so we'll put that link in the show notes. So let's not waste any more time. Alex, um, what motivated you to write the book and why is it so important now?
1: I started the book about two and a half years ago in early 2018, and it was motivated by the conflict between business and society, which was largely based on zero-sum thinking. So you did have some businesses who seek to make profit by extracting from wider society, so that might be cutting wages or hiking prices, or maybe less starkly, just focusing on maximizing profit, paying scant attention to the major problems that we have in the world, such as climate change or automation. So businesses with this zero-sum thinking were trying to extract value from others. But also, this zero-sum thinking was practiced by some citizens and politicians who wanted to stand up for wider society. Based on zero-sum thinking, the only way to make things better for wider society is to constrain businesses with heavy regulation. When in fact, I wanted to highlight that business is a force for good, business is a positive sum game. So in order to repurpose business, to work for wider society, it's important to work with capitalism
0: rather than against it. I can see this has become massively more relevant today as we think about how the economy needs to be reframed uh, coming out of the COVID-19 crisis. And in the book, you coined the phrase piconomics. How would you describe this in a nutshell? So, where does the
1: phrase pie economics come from? It's my view that the value that a company creates can be given by a pie. And notice that pie is not just financial value, it's not just profit, it's social value, such as improving human capital or natural capital or customer welfare. So, that pie is the social value that a company creates, and profits are only one slice of that pie. Those profits go to investors. And the rest of the pie goes to society in the form of improved human capital, taxes to the government and the like. Now, the traditional view is that managers aim to maximise profit and they believe that the pie is fixed. So if the pie is fixed and you want to increase profit to investors, the only way that you can achieve that is by reducing the slice which goes to other people, for example, through cutting wages or hiking prices, as I previously mentioned. But why the book is called Grow the Pie is it stresses that the pie is not fixed. And what that implies is another route to profits. is that rather than taking from other elements of society, let's create value for other stakeholders. And so that might be investing in your workers. That's not just a cost and expense. It makes workers more productive and more motivated. It might be that we're trying to solve a social problem maybe the coronavirus crisis. And even though we're motivated to do that, to solve this major problem, it may well be that we're ultimately able to monetize it. So what Pyconomics is, is that it's approach to business that seeks to create profits, but only as a result of creating value for society. So profits are important, right? They go to investors, which include pension funds and citizens saving for retirement, But the way we pursue profits is not directly, but we view it as a byproduct of serving society. And you might think, well, this all sounds too good to be true. If we serve society, does the company magically become more profitable? So that's why one of the big heartbeats of the book is rigorous academic evidence suggesting that actually companies that do serve society do become profitable as a byproduct. And the evidence suggests that it's serving society that leads to profit rather than you need to be profitable first
0: and then you can serve society. So what I'm hearing that is that pro is is in fact a holistic approach to the role of business in society, but grounded in evidence, which is certainly refreshing in what can sometimes seem like a, a fact-free environment that we live in today. But it's impossible to discuss the role of business in society without reference to the so-called Friedman doctrine, which is something I wanted to get your your views on. In fact, it does seem the rejection of this doctrine seems almost to have become a requirement for acceptance into polite society today. But Alex, what do you think about what Milton Friedman had to say and, and how does Pyconomics differ?
1: Yeah, this is really important because Milton Friedman, I think, is is widely misquoted. So he wrote in 1970 a very influential article called The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And almost immediately, that title seems offensive. It suggests that companies should only focus on profits to the exclusion of other stakeholders. So that seems to be the pie-splitting mentality. And often people who are concerned with business will quote this in order to highlight how narrow-minded business is and how radically we must reform it in order to a repurpose society. But actually, if you read the Friedman article, it's much more nuanced than people think because he stresses that in order to generate profits, at least in the long term, you have to take society seriously, you have to invest in stakeholders. And so that's indeed why he said the social responsibility of business is to increase profits, because by having profits as the objective, as long as it's long term profits, you will serve society uh, by investing in stakeholders. So the big similarity between Friedman and Pyconomics is both would view social value and profits as positively correlated, at least in the long term. So then how do they differ? I think they differ in two ways. One is the objective, and the other is the motivation. So with Pyconomics, the objective is social value, and profits are a byproduct of achieving social value. Whereas with Friedman, profits are the objective, and social value is a means to an end, a way of getting there. And that goes to the difference in the motivation. With Pyconomics, you intrinsically create social value. You invest in your employees because it's the right thing to do. But with Friedman, you have an instrumental approach to stakeholders. You only invest in them if you can calculate a profit benefit. So let's give an example. So finance professors like me have been teaching for the past 50 years that we decide on an investment with an instrumental calculation. So if we're thinking about building a factory, we estimate how many widgets that factory will produce, how much we can sell them for, and we can calculate a number. And so similarly, if we are to invest in our employees with training or better working conditions, we'll try to calculate what is the effect of better working conditions on productivity and profit. But we can immediately see that that's something really difficult to do for an intangible asset like human capital. So that, for me, is the strength of the Pyconomics approach, is it frees us from having to justify every investment with a financial calculation. We invest in our people for intrinsic reasons, because it's the right thing to do. And that ultimately leads to the company making more investments than it would do under Friedman, and ultimately even more profitable in the long term. So ironically, by not having profits as the Ultimate objective, the company might actually become more profitable um, through having this broader approach.
0: I mean, so I mean, you're really suggesting there that what is commonly attributed to Milton Friedman is is something of a, a caricature, and and actually the way you described it, there's not a whole difference between the Friedman doctrine and enlightened shareholder value, so-called. Would that be correct?
1: Yes, yeah, so I I'd, I'd see those things as, as pretty similar. So what is enlightened shareholder value? It's enlightened in that it recognizes to maximize shareholder value that you need to invest in your stakeholders. And like shareholder value itself is a term which is largely misunderstood because people immediately assume that shareholder value means short-termism, short-term profit. But actually, what is shareholder value? It's the value of all future dividends of a company. It's something which is inherently long-term.
0: Yeah. And, then, and so another another prominent framework I wanted to touch on before we get to some of the challenges that might be put against Pyconomics is the approach of triple bottom line, which became popular in the 1990s. John Elkington, a famous proponent of, of this approach. And this looked at sort of the triple bottom line being three bottom lines of profit, people and planet. And again, there seems to be some overlap with what you're saying in Pyconomics. But how would you compare and contrast those uh, points of view?
1: So I use the same um, framework that I did to answer your prior question, the objective and the motivation. Here, the objectives are similar. So both Pyconomics and triple bottom line would see social value as the objective. But I think where the difference is, is, is two. The first is the motivation. So I'd argue that triple bottom line is still instrumental. Right, You invest in stakeholders so that it can be reported as one of the three bottom lines. And so that might skew actions to ones with a short-term or quantitative payoff because it improves the bottom line. For example, with your workers, it might be about creating more jobs because you can record that rather than improving the quality of existing jobs because that's something which is much harder to report. Whereas Pyconomics says we create value for society for intrinsic reasons, even if it can't be measured, at least in the short term. So I think that's one difference, as I think Pyconomics is still more intrinsic. And the second is that triple bottom line is more about balance. So John Elkington, interestingly, he wrote an article in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago, actually rejecting the triple bottom line concept because he says that many people adopted it as, I quote, a balancing act, adopting a trade-off mentality. So what that would mean is that the goal is to balance people, profit, and planet. So if all of them got a score of four out of 10, that would be fine. But with Pyconomics, a leader's responsibility goes further than just balance. It's about growing the pie through innovation and excellence. So under Pyconomics, eight for profit, five for people, and five for planet would be better than four, four, four. whereas maybe under triple bottom line, it might seem to be unbalanced as if the greater profit was at the expense of other people, when in fact, it's actually a result of growing the pie and creating value for all three bottom lines.
0: I see. And the, um, the final sort of framework I wanted to touch on, well, I'm not sure I'd call it a framework, but the business round table in the United States has been getting in on the act. so truly we are all, all stakeholder capitalists now. Uh, what did you make of that statement? Did it represent the transformation that, that some have said? Is that economics in action?
1: Yeah, so indeed, people saw it as transformational. Some saw it transformationally in a good way, and some in a bad way. So the positives would say, "Well, this is a massive rejection of Milton Friedman. It's so much more enlightened than current approaches to capitalism." And then there was others who stand up for investors, saying, "Well, this is really bad. This is going to be at the expense of shareholder value and pension funds and the like." And my view is that it's in between. Is that it wasn't actually too radical? Why? Because, as per my earlier answer about Friedman is that, well, Friedman is pretty enlightened already. And so the Business Roundtable statement to take stakeholders seriously isn't hugely different from Friedman. So the statement says, we are going to take stakeholders seriously, which is indeed what Enlightened shelter value would would highlight. So I think the key thing is, is not making a statement, but putting it into practice. So there's a lot of thorny questions, which is, when you are trying to serve, Different stakeholders, well, stakeholders are not just one big bucket, they comprise workers, the environment, taxpayers, and so on. So some of the thorny questions is: how do we trade off between different stakeholders? Right, you are a um, fossil fuel company, you're thinking about closing down a polluting plant, that's good for the environment, that's bad for workers. Or there could be some trade-offs between stakeholders and investors, even in the long term. So rather than me saying this is really great or really bad, I think it was perhaps empty in and of itself, because it was mainly, in my view, not hugely different from enlightened shareholder value. And it avoided the more thorny questions, such as how are we going to put this into practice? How are we going to deal with trade-offs? And how are we going to allow ourselves to be held accountable for actually delivering on this statement? So indeed, what's happened in the sort of year since then is people have said, well, you've signed the statement, but actually your response to the pandemic hasn't been consistent with it. So I think I would rather judge companies' responses rather than just writing the statement, even though at the time, it did seem to be revolutionary.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the challenges is probably that many of the CEOs that signed that statement believed they were signing a description of what they did already, as opposed to signing a change agenda. So we could have a a mismatch of expectations there. So, I mean, in summary, it seems that pie economics is based on three key ideas, one being that the long term alignment between stakeholder interests and shareholder value is much greater than commonly thought. In, indeed, you say in your book that in the long run, almost all value becomes financial value, which then leads to the idea that leaders should focus on growing the pie for all stakeholders rather than just trying to grow their share. And then the third key point you make is uh, Pyconomics is based much more on intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivation, which yields all sorts of unexpected benefits in terms of greater innovation and motivation and positive spillovers. So I'm sort of hearing something that builds together some features of enlightened shelter value and triple bottom line, but then builds on it and, and goes much further. And that kind of brings me on to the point that one of the things that, that that really interests me about your writing is that it's tough to pigeonhole you into either one side of the debate or the other on responsible business, which, which probably means that you're you're getting it about right. But I wanted to take some time now to look at some of the arguments that could get made against your position from both supporters and sceptics of stakeholder capitalism. So let's first look at this criticism that if you have multiple objectives, you can't optimise. There's a couple of forms this criticism takes. So you've got people like Michael Jensen, who look at the question from an optimization perspective. So without profit maximisation as a goal, how do you figure out trade-offs? Or or another framing comes from, for example, the Council for Institutional Investors, who in their reaction to the Business Roundtable statement, in effect said, if you're accountable to everyone, you're accountable to to no one. So how how do you respond to this criticism about lack of clarity of objective function in, uh, in Pyconomics?
1: I think my first response is to acknowledge this is an important criticism because we need a framework to make decisions. So what we've taught in business schools for 50 years is that we use shareholder value to know whether or not to make an investment. We calculate the net present value. And if it's positive, we take it. If it's negative, we don't. And we need to replace that with something because otherwise, how will a CEO know what investments to take? And similarly, well, how can she be held accountable if instead it's just like a black box where anything goes? So we need some framework. And so that's why I I develop um, in the book uh, three principles that could guide a CEO on how to know what investments to take and what to turn down. And these are called the principles of multiplication, comparative advantage, and materiality. I'll take each one in turn. So the principle of multiplication asks, if I was to spend $1 on a stakeholder, does that create more than $1 of social values? Is that dollar multiplied? So you can think about this as being like the social net present value of an investment. So let's just illustrate that. So one thing that companies do often to serve society is to give to charity. But I don't view this as satisfying the principle of multiplication because $1 given to charity is just worth $1 to that charity. It might be better for that company to pay higher wages to workers or higher dividends to shareholders and then give them the freedom of what charity they want to support, it shouldn't be a CEO's prerogative to take that decision away from workers or or shareholders. But then another case in which you might have multiplication being satisfied is if a company was considering building a gym for its employees, is the cost of the gym less than how much the benefit will be to workers? And what's the strength of that? Because if you took the shareholder value approach, you would think about what's the benefit to the company of building the gym. You'd have to calculate how many workers are going to get less sick because of their greater fitness and how much more money you would make. There's no way of doing that. But you can think about the benefit to the employees of the gym because you could look at the cost of other gyms in the area as a rough benchmark. So actually, having social value as the measure of benefit rather than financial value, might make that calculation much simpler. So the second is comparative advantage. And this asks, do you create more value through this activity than other companies? And so what this stresses is that there's loads of problems in the world, climate change, automation, resource depletion. It's not your job to solve all of the world's problems, but instead the ones where you can move the needle most. And let me give an example. So Coca-Cola has this initiative called Project Last Mile in Africa. Its goal is to make vaccines available all throughout Africa, including the difficult last mile to a rural school or hospital, which is why it's got the name. So you might think, well, why does Coca-Cola do that? There's other big problems in society, such as climate change. But its comparative advantage is logistics, because it needs to make sure that Coke is available everywhere in Africa, and so it's using that logistics expertise to distribute vaccines. And you might think, well, if they're an expert in logistics, well, why don't they distribute books instead? Because there's literacy issues within Africa, but the unique thing about vaccines is they need to be transported cold, and then so do drinks. So, Coca Cola has specific expertise in refrigerated transportation that it uses in order to make sure that, well, it's vaccines that they're using to serve society rather than another social objective. And the final one is materiality, which is are the stakeholders that you deliver value to material to your business? Will they have a long term impact on shareholder value? Because if so, then increasing social value will ultimately also enhance shareholder value. So if you're an agriculture company, the environment is really material to you because if there's floods or if there's droughts, then you might not be able to farm as many crops. But maybe if you're a bank, right, while climate change is the order of the day, maybe even more material to you is financial inclusion or fair marketing and advertising. We don't want to be in a payment protection insurance scandal. And there's a great paper which shows that actually delivering value to all stakeholders indiscriminately doesn't lead to long-term shareholder returns, but delivering value only to material stakeholders and scaling back on the immaterial ones does. So that's the importance of having a priority structure and being discerning about knowing which stakeholders are first among equals when you have these tricky trade-offs.
0: And so, I mean, focus is a theme that, that that comes through your book in in various areas. But the, some of these principles, including multiplication, do assume that we can measure social value and compare it with, with financial value. Do you see progress being made in companies coming up with frameworks actually to do that?
1: I do. And I think this is one of the big growth areas for responsible businesses. Historically, uh, we've measured ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And those measures have more been on do no harm. So how much value do companies take away or extract, such as carbon emissions or water usage? But the whole idea of pie economics and growing the pie is that responsibility is about actively doing good. And there's an initiative, actually, um, co-authored by George Sarafim, who also wrote the materiality paper at Harvard, called Impact Weighted Accounts, trying to measure the positive impact that your product is is creating. And I think that is a big step forward, because then we're going to think about responsible business, not so much as do no harm, but actively doing good.
0: And I think that's where, I mean, your framework of multiplication, comparative advantage and materiality, I think is amongst the most original contributions of the book, because it does provide a really concrete process for for managing trade-offs. Uh, But the second um, potential criticism of the approach that I'd like to come on to is that, you know, perhaps you place too much faith in the alignment of interests between stakeholders and shareholders. So, indeed, many non-financial factors may become financial over the long enough term, and many externalities may become internalized, but not all of them. And if if I was to take the phraseology of uh, Anand Giridharas, the author of Winners Take All, perhaps you've been co-opted by market world into this sort of very comforting win-win line of argument whereby businesses can make loads of money by making the world a better place. But in reality, there are real and irreconcilable conflicts, whether between capital and labor, profits and the environment. And Pyconomics not only fails to address these trade-offs, but but even more dangerously suggests we don't have to. So uh, how would you how would you respond to that?
1: I think, again, I respond by acknowledging that that is a a serious counter argument that that needs to be taken seriously. So what you've talked about, Tom, is is the concept of an externality, which is an impact that a company has on society, which doesn't ultimately come back and affect profits. And so indeed, while one of the ideas of the book is that many things that we think of as being externalities are actually internalized in the long term. So that was the alignment that I was highlighting earlier, it still is the case that there are true externalities, as you mentioned, and it would just be too naive and too unrealistic to think that everything that you do to serve society ultimately helps you. So this is why um, pie economics does advocate for a larger pie, even if it leads to shareholders getting a smaller stake. So again, the highlight is grow the pie, not grow investors slice. And I think here it's important to understand the difference between shareholder welfare and shareholder value. So let's assume that a company should be run exclusively for its shareholders. Now, I understand there's a debate about that, but that's often a legal debate, which is not my expertise. But let's for now assume that you should be maximizing shareholder welfare. But shareholder welfare is not the same as shareholder value, i.e. the financial value of shares because why do people invest in companies for retirement? It's to provide themselves not with the greater income in retirement, but greater living standards. So I would be perfectly happy when I retire to have a slightly lower income if the planet was two degrees cooler. So I think Pyconomics does allow for companies to take these true externalities into account and actually sacrifice some shareholder value, even in the long term, in order to benefit shareholders in terms of these externalities. Now obviously the big question here is sort of how do we know how much profit one should be willing to sacrifice in order to create a certain amount of social value. But I think this is where the principles help. Because if we think about something like the principle of comparative advantage, it still is costly to Coca-Cola's profits in order to run Project Last Mile. But because comparative advantage is satisfied, the small investment that investors are making in terms of lost profits pays many, many times over in the form of externalities and the form of greater vaccination within Africa.
0: Yeah. And I think it would also be fair to say that you're not saying that there should be no regulation and that everything can be dealt with through this sort of alignment question. You would see circumstances in which regulation is necessary.
1: I would absolutely. So while I do think there's an the importance of companies intrinsically embracing purpose rather than purpose being legislated, I still recognise that markets fail. And one of the big reasons why market fail are externalities that exist in the long term. And so the role of governments is to correct these market failures. It could be through outright banning some activities with externalities, such as, say, child labour, or less starkly taxing actions with externalities, such as a carbon tax, to cause companies to internalise externalities that they otherwise would not.
0: Uh, You mentioned the sort of legal structure of companies earlier. And I mean, one of the points that's made by some arguing for reform of capitalism is that people like Marty Lipton, for example, might make this argument that if you don't change the legal responsibilities of directors or the balance of powers between shareholders and boards, then really you're not changing anything. Pyconomics is nothing but a reheated form of shareholder primacy that, that that says nothing new. What would you say is really different about it?
1: So I think to go back to the idea of changing legal structures, I know that's got popularity, but again, I'd go back to the evidence. There's no evidence that I'm aware of for changing the legal structure actually working in terms of delivering either stakeholder or shareholder value. And in contrast, Pyconomics isn't, isn't just an idea, but it's ones that's, that's backed up by evidence, which shows what does create long-term value. For example, long-term CEO pay, some of the other things, Tom, that you mentioned in the intro- introduction, like shareholder engagement and capital re- reallocation. So those are things which evidence suggests does work. And then is this just a reheated form of shareholder primacy? Uh, I think there's two main differences. So one of them is my answer to the prior question, which is that it recognises that shareholder welfare is different from shareholder value. So shareholders might actually be quite happy with sacrificing even long-term profits in order to solve some social problems. And then the second is the importance of the intrinsic versus instrumental approach, where the approach to shareholder primacy as historically practiced has been all about instrumental calculations. That's what we see in every finance textbook. But I'm saying actually we can step away from these calculations, if we are to pursue social value for intrinsic reasons, this might actually help deliver more shelter value in the long term, because it means that we would be able to take some investments, even though we couldn't justify them with a financial spreadsheet calculation.
0: And so, I mean, coming back to this question of trade-offs, I guess the final kind of line of argument I'd like to put to you is the uh, Cornell-DeModeran Cornell, uh, kind of critique, which is that if we put the judgments about trade-offs in the hands of directors, this lacks legitimacy. Any decision to prioritize a stakeholder group above shareholders amounts to a tax on those shareholders and a redistribution decision by the board. But however imperfectly we may feel they work, we have democratic processes to do that and to decide you know, to take an example the trade-off between costs and, and pollution and in fact you know we could increase public disenchantment with business if we allow directors to think that they can make these decisions playing to their own preferred constituencies who may well not be those already feeling left behind by society so how do you argue with this point of legitimacy about putting these decisions into directors hands
1: Yeah, again, this is a a very valid criticism. And you might think there should be a separation, right? Companies should focus on maximizing profits. And then governments should focus on maximizing social value through taxes and and, and through policy and so forth. But I'd say that view is is misleading for a couple of reasons. First, there's two crucial aspects of of Pyconomics. The first is that it's in in a firm's own interest to take stakeholders seriously as this would improve long-term profits. So no matter what politicians you elect and what laws they pass, this Cornell de Modern critique would argue that you should do the bare minimum in order to comply with the law. But what Pyconomics highlights is that it's in a company's interest to go above and beyond that. So I think even regardless of what laws we have, Pyconomics is different because you want to actually intrinsically deliver value to stakeholders. But I would say that their critique does apply to true externalities, which are the trade-offs that exist even in the long run. And you might think it's politicians who should decide these trade-offs, i.e. how much of the profit slice to sacrifice to get a bigger pie rather than CEOs. But I still think there's there's two problems with the law. Uh, So the first is that it can only deal with measurable externalities, because only if something is measurable can it be enforced by the law. So you can legislate a minimum wage, but not working conditions or or meaningful work. And I think the second problem is that laws are one size fits all. They apply to to all companies. And and so it could never take into account a company's specific comparative advantage, for example, Coca-Cola running Project Last Mile. And let me illustrate that with, with an actual law. So India, has a law which forces companies to donate 2% of their profits to CSR initiatives. But I think that's problematic because, first, CSR could be anything, and it could be that companies end up spending on initiatives where they have no comparative advantage, and it could indeed be just the CEO's pet project. And then, second, this 2% is is blanket. It may be that certain firms should be spending more, because they've got comparative advantage in a certain social activity, and maybe other firms should be spending less because actually they've got great investment opportunities in their core business, and actually they serve society best by reinvesting in their core business rather than these ancillary activities.
0: So, uh, Alex, as we come towards the end of of our time here today, I did just want to come on to the nature of the discourse on responsible business. And it strikes me that one of the weaknesses of your book is that it's it's balanced. So it, it doesn't fill me with righteous indignation and hatred of the other side of the argument. But this is also clearly its great strength. How could we make a space for more nuanced thinking of this type? in the responsible business debate in our increasingly polarised world. I'm
1: an economist by training, so so I believe in supply and demand. And uh, demand creates its own supply. So if indeed people who read books or people who are practitioners and think about this seriously ask for... Nuanced and balanced thinking, then hopefully, those who supply that thinking, be this journalists or academics or other people who write influential pieces, will be more willing to supply this. And note it's very tempting not to ask for something balanced because we'd like to think that the world is black and white. Indeed, there's a psychological bias known as black and white thinking or splitting, which means it's really tempting to see companies as either good or evil. But instead for us to recognise that rarely is there clear evidence of something or rarely is there an issue beyond doubt. And yet there's a lot of articles out there saying there's clear evidence of X or the case for Y is beyond doubt. So for us to ourselves, when we choose what articles to like or share or to retweet to make sure that those articles are themselves balanced. I think one thing that we can do is just to look at the importance of evidence, which is one of the heartbeats of the book, is that there are simple checks that non academics can do to make sure that the evidence is reliable. For example, for an academic paper, is it published in a peer reviewed journal? Is that journal a stringent journal, for example, included in the Financial Times list of top 50 journals? And then make sure that whenever we are latching on to a study or an article, We're doing so not because it conforms to our view of the world, but because it's something which is actually backed up by rigorous evidence.
0: Well, thanks. Thanks, Alex. Um, Certainly some wise words there. And overall, thank you for a a great discussion.
1: Thanks very much, Tom.
0: And to remind listeners, you can buy the book and access a whole load of other great related resources at growthepie.net and in the next episode we're going to scrutinize what the best academic evidence does and indeed does not say about the benefits of responsible business and wherever you sit on the spectrum from critic to supporter of responsible business there should be some surprises in the podcast for you so do subscribe to make sure you get all the episodes in this series thank you for listening